Well, do take your Bible or use the, uh, the bulletin uh, insert there with the passage we're looking at this evening in Acts chapter 4. I wonder if you know the story of Larry Walters. Larry was a man who'd always longed to fly, but poor sight meant that he was turned down for the U.S. Air Force, and uh, he spent his life instead being a, a truck driver. But then one day, to make his dream come true, he bought 45 four-foot weather balloons. He strapped them to an anchored garden chair in his backyard, back garden, to those of us who are English, inflated them with helium, took a picnic and a loaded air gun, got into the chair and cut the anchor. His idea was that he would float few hundred feet off the ground and then use his air gun to puncture one or two of the balloons so that he could descend gently back down to the earth again. Well, the principle was a good principle, but in fact, what happened was that the balloons took him straight up to 11,000 feet before he leveled off, at which height he was too nervous to fire the gun at anything, <laughs> as you would be. He drifted there for about 14 hours until he found himself in the approach corridor to Los Angeles International Airport. A pilot of a jumbo jet radioed the control tower to say that he had just passed a man <laughs> sitting, sitting in a garden chair at 11,000 feet with a gun on his lap. <laughs> well, eventually the, the U.S. Navy Air Sea Rescue Helicopter <laughs> recovered, recovered the man and he was duly arrested. I don't know what happened after that, but I'm sure there must be some law somewhere in the statute for people that do that kind of stunt. Well, you could talk, you could say about Larry Walters that that was courage. Actually, it was more like stupidity, but there is an element of courage. I mean, what kind of idiot does that uh, in, in life? But there you go, it was a good story for tonight, and it actually happened as well. It was true history that happened. The real courage, courage, uh, I suppose, usually doesn't have the element of stupidity in it. Real courage is manifested by the, uh, the policeman and the fireman who went into the blazing building with debris falling all around to rescue people. There's true courage. And on today we recognize true courage when we see it. And this reading about Acts is about courage. The word that's used is the word boldness. You can see that in verse 13. The authorities saw the boldness of Peter and John. And verse 29, later on, they prayed for boldness, courage. And then verse 31, they went out to speak boldly with courage. They went out boldly to speak about the things of God. So boldness or courage is the big theme of the passage. And I suppose we're interested in the theme of courage or boldness because many of us suffer from a failure of nerve when it's necessary. Not just in any area of our life, but specifically in the area of our commitment to or testimony to or refer uh, with reference to our faith in the Lord Jesus. Because the church in the world, and by that I mean us, very often characterized, aren't we, by a guilty silence. The world has asked the church to sit down and be quiet, and the, the church has largely acquiesced with 
the world's request. Indeed, the church, especially in its institutional form, has often told the church to sit down and be quiet, and the church has largely obeyed. Here's the church of Jesus Christ that knows so many biblical things, and there are so many people who need to hear them, and there are also so many people who hate to hear them. And so some pastors, professors, teachers are tempted to water down the truth to maintain warm relationships both within the church and without it. I think we need to learn from the story of the boldness of Peter and John. Now, three things to think about his, this boldness that, that I immediately see in the context. One is that convictions informed it, circumstances demanded it, and Christ inspired it. Convictions informed their boldness. I'm only going to summarize the previous section in two parts to say these two things. That in their previous encounter with these authorities, just earlier on in, uh, in this chapter, Peter and John have, have made it very clear about two points. One, that Scripture has been fulfilled in Christ and that salvation has been accomplished in Christ. Very quickly, Scripture has been fulfilled. Earlier on, when they were quizzed by the authorities, the authorities asked them, by what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man. The background is the story of the, the man who's been healed. We're still moving off the back of that story in our studies of Acts. And he goes on to spell it out. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. And there's boldness to say that to the authorities. But he goes on from there and he quotes to them their Bible. Here's Peter. He's never been through the schools, as we'll see in a moment. And here he is now quoting the Bible at the people who are the Bible scholars. He says, quoting the Bible, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. You see what he's saying? This healing was done in the name of Jesus. He's still working. He's working now through us apostles. He's done the work. This man is standing here as evidence of the power of the name of Jesus Christ. What you see here is what he did. You know this. For the last three years, he's been doing this all over the place. Everybody knows this. And now this is an example that he's still able to do it. This man standing here. And he points them to the Bible and he says, What has God said about Jesus in the Old Testament? God has said from Sam, this Sam that he's quoting, that uh, the builders, those responsible for the worship of Israel, are going to reject the very one that God intends to make the centerpiece of his purposes in the world. What has God done to prove this? Well, here's what he's done. He has raised Jesus from the dead. We have a tour guide over here who will take you to see the tomb. Well, Peter didn't say that. I added that little bit in myself. Did you notice? But that's the point. So he's introducing this note of certainty. Here's a conviction 
that he's putting to, forward to these authorities, Scripture has been fulfilled in Jesus. Secondly, he says, salvation has been accomplished by Jesus. All that needs to be done for the salvation of the world has been done by Jesus. He makes that very clear. I don't think I made it clear enough last week, so I'm going to make it even clearer today. Nobody, Peter argues, nobody is saved, that is, nobody is brought back into a right relationship with God by any other means or through any other figure than the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Peter says. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He's using the word salvation in its full sense. The imagery supported by this man standing in front of them who has been healed thoroughly of a physical disease. Peter is spelling out that that thorough healing of this man is a parable, a picture, if you will, of the thorough salvation that God has accomplished in Jesus. He starts by saving your spirit, saving your soul, and he's going on to finish the job when he raises you bodily from the dead and saves your body for all eternity so that you have life inside and outside. Full life. Total salvation. Full salvation. That's what Jesus has come to accomplish. Salvation in its entirety. Notice the other word he uses. There is no other name. That is, it's exclusive. Only Jesus does this. Not only that, but it's necessary. He uses the must word. It is necessary that you must be saved by Jesus. Absolutely necessary. If you're going to be saved, you have to be saved in the name of Jesus. What's he arguing? He's arguing Jesus is the Savior in a way no other Savior can be. So the, the early Christians have absolutely no notion of advocating anything like the pluralism we see today. Or the fudge, for example, the Roman Catholic Church today believes that there are people in the world who are anonymous Christians, that is, they are good Buddhists, good Muslims, good Confucianists, and because they haven't heard about Jesus, they just haven't believed in him, but actually really in their hearts, they are already Christians and they don't know it. And the business of the church is to tell them what they already are. Peter makes this absolutely clear to people who are deceived by that kind of false notion. And if I was you, I would bet on Peter's words here. He says there is no other Savior. Though rejected by the authorities within Judaism, God has justified Jesus by raising him from the dead and exalting him to the very highest place. Only Jesus can save. Notice this. It's the only name given among men. That is set out before the eyes of all men and women, wherever they are. It's the only name out there in the public arena by which you must be saved. Now, have it been clearer this week? Convictions informed their boldness. These two things, Scripture has been fulfilled, salvation has been accomplished, that's where they're operating from. But their boldness was demanded by the circumstances they found themselves in. For here they are now brought before the authorities. Verse 13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter 
and John, they were astonished. They were perplexed. Perplexed at several levels. Two things. One, they saw the boldness of Peter and John. That word in Greek contexts usually refers to the characteristics of someone who is a free citizen. And so what is happening here that the apostles are standing before the, the high council of Judaism and making it clear that they understood that they were free citizens under an authority that was above theirs, above their pay grade, an authority that was higher than the council of Judaism. And they're just amazed, these authorities were told this. They, they noticed that these people, these men, they were uneducated. That is, they, they lacked the formal credentials. They hadn't been through the credentialing processes of, of their Jewish denomination. They hadn't been to the right schools. They didn't have the right paperwork. They didn't have the right net letters after their name. They did not have formal education, number one. Number two, they were common men. That means they did not have formal status. They were not rabbis. They were not ordained. They were not in any official role. They were not formally recognized. And thirdly, what did they think? See, as they looked at these men, they lacked formal education. They lacked formal status. But nonetheless, there is something about the authority they bear within themselves and the clarity by which they speak the Word of God. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. They'd been educated, and they'd had status out with official channels through their association with Jesus. That's the first thing that astonished them. The second thing that astonished them, of course, is the phenomenon that was standing there beside these two men. We're told that there was Peter, John, and this unnamed crippled man who was 40 years old when he was, when he was healed. And he'd been, he'd been crippled from the womb. He'd been born in this state, immobile, having to be moved, lifted, and laid all of those 40 years of his life. So there he's standing, like Exhibit A in a law court, They'd seen him every day. They'd walk past him, begging outside the beautiful gate of the temple. He was well-known, a community, well-known in the figure in the community. Everybody knew he was a cripple. How he exhibited undeniable, now evidence for a miracle. They could not, they could not gainsay it. And this is a reminder as we read this, that the Bible is a history book. In other words, it's an account of something remarkable, something unusual, something that attracts attention, that prompts a reaction. It's claiming to describe events that have occurred in space and time and history. And people today, no more than those men there in the Sanhedrin, people today don't understand naturally, as these, re these religious leaders did not understand, because it doesn't fit their naturalistic presuppositions. We saw last time that these Sadducees were naturalists. And uh, that is that, not naturists. I don't know what a naturist is, but I think it's not a good thing. Naturalists me mean, don't want you to go down the wrong track there. Uh, naturalists mean that they have naturalistic presuppositions that the whole of reality can be ex explained. I do say the wrong word sometimes, so I've got to just pause and make sure I've said the right one, just in case you're all sitting there wanting to laugh because I've said the wrong thing. So I think I said the right word. Naturalistic presuppositions are that everything that you see can be explained by what you see. 
There is nothing beyond what we can, what we can pre-verify in a, in a scientific way. Christianity has always had people who struggle with the concepts, the story, the language of the Bible. These people did. The apostolic claim was that this miracle, this man standing before them, was a work of God through the faith of the name of Jesus, the servant of the Lord. And these men found it unacceptable because it gave status to Jesus as the risen Messiah. It challenged the Sadducees' position on resurrection and life after death. They didn't believe in it. It questioned the role of their leadership in Israel. And what offended them most was the supernaturalism that was implicit in the message that they were proclaiming. So these authorities then, the only solution they could come up with was to contain this infection of, with, by raw power and intimidation. So they command the apostles not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. They couldn't do anything else at this point because people power kept them from doing anything else other than threat, threatening them. The, the people were utterly amazed that this man was there. He was kind of just there. Nobody could gainsay it. Nobody could question it. There he was. They could, later on, they would flog the disciples. Even later, they would kill the disciples of Jesus. But right now, their hands were tied. So all they did was warn them, threaten them. You see, the world, the world then wants to stop the preaching of Christ. It's never been otherwise that the world has not wanted to, the world has always wanted to stop the preaching of Christ. I know that some of you, you have a problem with Christianity because you think that Christianity and the establishment in American society go together. Not in a formal way because you believe in the separation of church and state, but, but in, in a real sense because you think Christianity has had so much influence, political influence within America, and that frightens you. And you think Christianity cannot be true because of its, its associations with the, the rich and the powerful and the influential within society. But the reality is that no matter how influential you think Christianity is, let me tell you that the people who are really influential in our society, whether of the right or of the left, are opposed intrinsically to the Christian message and always have been. People have been agitating against biblical Christianity since the earliest days of civilization on this continent. In the, in the 19th century, North America was as infected as Europe was by ideas that, that destroyed, demolished any idea, any sense that what you find in the Bible is historical truth. In the 20th, centuries, 20th century, entire denominations, some of the best known seminaries on this continent, have abandoned biblical and historical Christianity for the very reasons that these Sadducees hated it. The supernaturalism that is an essential element of it. The elements of the deity of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. These are realities that are all around us. The gospel is never loved by the world. Here was the problem here. These religious bureaucrats, they formed a committee, verse 15. 
When they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. It was closed doors. It wasn't an open session. And they, they noted several things here. And uh, I think we know this information because some of them eventually became Christians. They could not deny, one, that a notable sign had been done by the apostles. That it was manifest. That it was people could see the evidence. Everybody living in Jerusalem could see it. Now, the word sign is the word that Luke uses for the miracles of Jesus. In other words, they recognized this was something unusual, out of the ordinary, something that you could not explain away. You could not rationalize it away, and they don't even attempt to do that. They recognize a notable sign has been done. One of the things that Luke is doing indirectly here is telling us that signs and wonders themselves will never convince people of the reality of Christianity. All the signs and wonders in the world would not make Christianity suddenly believable by the masses of people. Didn't then, wouldn't now. I want you to look at the connection between verses 16 and 17. In verse 16 they say, A great and undeniable sign of love and power has been done by these courageous men in the name of Jesus. In verse 17 they say, Let's threaten them with harm and try to keep them quiet about this Jesus. Verse 16 states reasons to seriously consider the truth of what Peter and John are saying. Verse 17 describes the behavior of people who are not interested in truth. And so behind closed doors they move second and agree that they will order the apostles to speak no more to anyone in the name of Jesus. It's the oldest trick in the book. It's a way of, of dealing with Disturbing truth, you quash it, you try to diminish it, you silence the people. I mentioned earlier that in the 20th century, major, uh, major U.S. denominations did this. One particular one that I've been reading about got into the wrong hands. The levers of power within the organization got into the wrong hands. A number of ministers signed a an affirmation which, in which they denied key doctrines of the faith, like the virgin birth, the inerrancy of the Bible, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And they were not disciplined by the church. Not only were they not disciplined, they began through their committee, a committee of the church, to target people who did believe those essential elements of Christianity with a view to pushing them out the church. And one by one, they lost the evangelical people who loved the gospel lost their seminary and many of them lost their churches and had to leave behind the buildings, their pensions, and they lost some of the credibility they'd had. Sometimes circumstances demand us to be courageous. But the third thing we notice here is that Christ inspired their courage. Fearing the public, we're told that they commanded them to stop teaching. That word command is a strong word. They called them and charged them or commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Those two words, speak or teach, have a slightly different nuance. One may mean stop publicly proclaiming and the other stop privately teaching individuals in small groups. So what they want is what? Silence and control of the apostles. 
They don't want them to bring any testimony forward to God's work through Jesus. They want to bring it to a complete stop. They want to intimidate the apostles. And here we see the apostles kicking in, in their response. They explained that they were working under a higher authority than the Sanhedrin. That their mandate came from God. Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You see what they're doing? They're directing the judges to judge their own judging, to ask whether they might be setting themselves at odds with God. Knowing that all human authorities depend on God for legitimacy, Peter posed a dilemma to this Sanhedrin. He challenged the leaders to judge whether God would consider it right for the apostles to heed their prohibition instead of his express command. I think there are two things about Christ that inspired them. I think Christ's commission inspired them. You see this word to charge or command that's used, the Greek word that's used here, is repeatedly used in the Gospels, but it's used of Jesus in the Gospels. Here are the Sadducees and the, the Sanhedrin charging or commanding them to be silent, but actually they'd heard this idea before, this idea of being charged or commanded before, and always it was Jesus charging them, the twelve, to go to the lost sheep of Israel in Matthew 10. Or in Luke chapter 8, commanding them, charging them to... Uh, charging an unclean spirit to come out of a man. Or in Mark 8, verse 6, commanding the crowd to be seated before they were fed by that miraculous feeding of the 5,000. In other words, they were so used to hearing the commands of Jesus, they couldn't bear to listen to the commands of men that superseded the commands of Jesus. They were attuned to the Master's voice. Used to be a, used to be a company that made uh, vinyl records, a historical item that used to be in a turntable that made noises. For those of you who are young, the precursor to the CD. And, uh, and the, uh, the image that they used in advertising this company, I think it was HMV, the company, was a dog listening to an old gramophone machine, his master's voice, the dog listening for his master's voice. Well, these disciples were well, so listening to Jesus' voice that they didn't heed the voice of the Sanhedrin. That's the first thing. Jesus' commission inspired them. But secondly, Jesus' achievement inspired them. Because you see the response of Peter and John here. Here they were in trial for their life. What are they going to talk about? Well, what they're not going to do is they're not going to give a nice little talk that gives you a moral uplift, makes you feel better, massages your ego and tells you to feel better about yourself so that you go home with a better sense of who you are. I want you to have your best life now. Or words to that effect. He doesn't do that. You notice that there's no time for that, no blessed thought, nor does he try to inculcate a kind of social conscience and, and get them all hyped up about changing the world. No, he says, this is what we have to say. There is something we have seen and heard. 
These are the apostles, of course. They're, they're the first eyewitnesses and earwitnesses. The Bible says that the church is built on the apostles and prophets. Foundation. In other words, the only Christian message is their message. It's an apostolic message. These apostles were very careful. They had been with Jesus from the beginning. That's been one of the themes we saw right from the beginning of Acts chapter 1. This is what characterizes the twelve. They have been with Jesus from the beginning. Even Paul recognized that they were in a different category. They're the foundation for the church. Listen to John, who was with Peter that day, writing later on in his life, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the word was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. You see, that's what differentiates the gospel from every other religion. It is historical, it invites historical investigation, and it is all about a person. It is all Christ-focused. Later on in his life, Peter would say something similar. He writes to people conscious that he himself is about to be killed for the faith. He writes to them and he says, you know, I think it right as long as I'm in this body, that is, as long as I'm alive, to stir you up by way of reminder, so that after my departure, that is, after I'm dead and gone, you may be able to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received glory and honor from the Father, and the voice with whom was borne to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. This was their testimony. They, were, they had seen and heard stuff. And the, these authorities recognized that they'd been with Jesus. They'd been with him from the beginning. So they had credentials. They had seen him and heard him. Well, they'd been in his company. And they'd listened to his voice. And they looked into his eyes. And they observed how he lived. And they'd noticed his compassion. And they'd witnessed his miracles. And they'd been appalled by his death. And they'd been surprised by his resurrection. They knew him. And theirs is the first hand witness that we point people to. You see, I could stand up here and talk about my religious experience to you, and, and I do have a religious experience, and I have had many experiences of God, but in a sense, none of that really would, would cut it, because people from other religions could stand here and tell you about their religious experience. So when we give our testimony, you see, our testimony, witness in the New Testament, is not so much me talking about myself and my religious experience as bringing you back to the Bible and telling you about their witness and testimony. They were there. 
They'd been there, done that, got the T-shirt. I was with Jesus. And we are only ever secondary witnesses. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17 that we're only Christians today if we come to know him through their message. So what is our business? Our business is to get their message out to the world. So they said, that's all we have to say to you. We have to speak about this. We've seen and heard it. We can't be silent. How can we be silent? And who's saying this? Peter's saying it. Peter, who did a wobbly. Do you have wobbly in American English? Well, he's standing, and a girl comes up to him. Guys, you know what this is like. A girl comes up to him. Says, aren't you one of those Jesus freaks? Well, she didn't say that like that. But does he want to admit that he's with Jesus? No. His first failure is to a girl by the fireside. And it goes on from there three times. He denies that he knows Jesus. This Peter is not naturally bold, you see. And it's very interesting that Jesus had warned them about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in Luke. Earlier on in Luke's writing, Luke part 1, this is Luke part 2. In Luke part 1, Jesus had promised that when they were dragged before the rulers and the authorities in the temple courts, the Holy Spirit would give them the words to say. And here, up against it, the Holy Spirit gives Peter the words to say. Now he's ready to suffer for Jesus. Now, because of what he's seen and heard, the resurrected Lord, now he's ready to stand up and stand out for Jesus. I must obey God rather <clears throat> than men. Now, you see, God turns up, side down, the values of the world. And he puts before us the challenge this evening as to our loyalty to the Lord Jesus. Thank God for their boldness. We now have a New Testament, and we can know about the Lord Jesus through their testimony. But what about you when you're asked by the pretty girl, where were you yesterday, tomorrow morning? Would you even admit to being in church without kind of saying something that diminishes what happened in this room? Will you be bold to speak about the Lord Jesus? Do you, do you deny it by implication? Why did these people defy the authorities? They defied the authorities because they believed their message. To deny it would, would have meant that life would not be worth living. And they believed that the authorities could do nothing to them, nothing to them, except kill them. See, that's the worst that people can do to you, kill you. And if you believe in the risen Lord Jesus, you see, that means they can't do anything to you. Once a man or a woman is convinced that death has been defeated by Jesus, there is nothing anybody can do to you. Should they take 
our wives, goods, honor, children, wife, then is their profit small. These things shall vanish all. The city of God remains. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would make us bold in our witness to our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for his glory. Amen.